Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. people to celebrate. One is Stephanie, just graduated with her master's from UW, which is pretty awesome. Commencement was yesterday. She defended her thesis last week. Also, uh, Hannah is about to graduate. She's done, right? (laughs) All the requirements are done, but she walks, I think it's next weekend, right? Which is awesome. So two weekends and two weekends she gets to walk with her masters, which is pretty awesome as well from the Seattle School. We also have some students that just finished up at SPU, so Emma and Lydia and Andrea, they, they're all done. Finals were last week, I think, and so they're decompressing like crazy, I'm sure. And SPS, the Seattle Public Schools, finish up here in two weeks as well. So all the kids will finally have their summer break that they've been so desperately longing for and waiting for. So it is about here for everyone. It is a season of rest that is coming up, as well as a season of adventure as we get to venture out into the great wide open that is Washington State, that is travel, that is the beautiful summers and the things that we long for. I'm still, I'm still amazed that last night we were driving home. We were, we went over to the Olympic Peninsula yesterday and we went up to Hurricane Ridge and on the way home, we grabbed like one of the, a a later ferry, like an eight o'clock ferry coming back from Bremerton. And oh my goodness, it was like 8.30 and we're like, it is still really light outside. And we got home and it was like 9.30 and I'm like, the sun still is not down yet. I'm still not used to this. So It's amazing. It just hits you like crazy. So we're in that season, which is really fun and really exciting to be. It's the thing that we wait for through the dark winters is for this moment to arrive. It's finally here. Graduations, summer, all of it. So we're just a little bit over a year old as a church. We're a year and a few months old, and I kind of want to turn back the page a little bit. Like, when we started this thing, we started upon an idea that we wanted to be a church that centered ourselves around an ethic of love. That everything that we did was an outflowing and an outpouring of love, not only to each other and to God, but to the world around us. That we wanted to be this different sort of church that really placed love at the center of what it was that we were doing. That love was the the tangible action step for everything that we are and everything that we do. We wanted to be that. What's really fascinating, just this past week, Trevor and I were looking at some different statistics, some different web statistics, trying to figure out like how we're, how we're doing like in terms of like searching and how people are finding us as a church and what they're looking into. And one of the really fascinating things that we found was on Google, if you Google love church, we're like the fifth, the fifth highest. Like we're number five when you Google love church church. We did it in an incognito browser so we wouldn't get all the, you know, other stuff, right? Love church. Like, we were number five. That's kind of what we're being known for. Like, people are searching for love church and they're finding us, which is really crazy. And I see a couple of you already on your phones like, is that really true? It really is. 
It's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. It's pretty awesome. It showed up like in our statistics and we wouldn't test it in ourselves. We're like, love church. Like this thing, this idea that we're wanting to be, this church that is centering ourselves around love is kind of starting to filter itself outside of this, outside of who we are. And that's kind of how we're becoming known in people's search history and people's searching for a church. They're wanting to see if that is really true of other churches. When we started this thing, a lot of people said, man, and to have a church that's founded on this ethic of love, that's really great and wonderful. But, bro, that's like hippy-dippy, man. Like, you're just try- are you trying to create, like, a hippie church? Like, is that, is, that, is that what this is? Is that what people are wanting to rally around? Is like this hippie, sort of hippy-dippy kind of deal? Maybe. But no, no, because there's something so fascinating about love in a world that is starved for love. There is a world out there that is starving for true, real, tangible ways of experiencing love that for us to do that and for us to be that not only fills a void, but actually catapults us into who it is that God called us to be as human beings, not just as a church, but as human beings. I think it's really fascinating because love is actually really in vogue right now. When, when we started this whole thing, this whole experiment, this whole community called church that's called United, when we started this thing, we, we didn't, like, love wasn't this in vogue sort of deal just yet, right? Like, people weren't talking about it all over the place. It was, like, it was kind of bubbling up culturally here and there, but, but now, there, I, just walking downtown, I saw this, Make America Love Again, right? Just this little sticker on the side of a light pole, Make America Love Again. I got really curious about where'd that even come from? Like, what what is this all about? It was an artist in Chicago that developed this sort of thing and passed it out at the Women's March, the very first Women's March in D.C. And it's kind of made its way all over the country. People are hungry for this idea called love. When, when I was running around Lake Union, uh, there, was, there was this on one, of the, on one of the fences. Love wins. Love wins, right? It's become kind of a cultural mantra that is beginning to bubble up more and more and more within our society and within our culture. And I guarantee in a couple of weeks, uh, on, on June 30th, when the Pride Parade hits Seattle, you'll see a ton of love wins signs all over the place in the parade. Because love is something that people are hungry for. They want to see love win out in the end of everything. Or this one that you can see actually in our neighborhood. Just down the street, especially on this, the west side of Queen Anne. You are worthy of love. A dad of an elementary school student at Coe Elementary here on the west side of Queen Anne saw that there was a tremendous like suicide epidemic starting to hit. Not only the country, but in Seattle, four high school students had committed suicide, and he wanted to do something about it. He wanted to create something different, and so he just started putting up these sorts of yard signs all over the place on the way to Coe Elementary, as well as in his own front yard and in front yards all around the city. They were all around Queen Anne. Like this idea of you are worthy of love, that you can actually receive this. You can actually experience love in this world because this is what we are hungry for. 
But what exactly is love? What is this thing that we're actually really hungry for? How can we really truly understand what it is and what it's all about? Because honestly, love can feel like this really ethereal sort of thing, this amorphous thing that just kind of floats around, and you can grab at any little thread of it and say, yeah, that's love. Or you can grab at another thread over here and go, oh, yeah, that, that, that's love. And it's just something that you can't quite wrap your arms around because there's so many understandings, so many definitions of what this love is. And we've become, we've began to understand love as nothing more than feelings or or warm fuzzies. Now that's what love truly is. It's become something that is so big that we've lost its core. For example, I love Tracy, but I also love tacos. <laughs> right? Like love has become so big, we use that language in so many different ways that it's almost lost the depth of its meaning. I love my daughter, but I also really love chocolate. Right? Like this is how love has become used within our society as it pushes and shifts. And it's hard to say, but I'm pretty sure I do love Tracy more than tacos. Right? But it's still not the same. It's not the same. <laughs> it's a close race. In Mark chapter 12, we've been walking through this gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 12, we have this setting that is starting to be created, that has been created, of this giant idea that needs some pulling together. This giant amorphous sort of thing that needs to be reined in and understood narrowly. Something that needed to be focused. And here in, in this part of Mark, we have Jesus who has been arguing all day. He's been debating left and right with people in all sorts of different ways. It starts with his authority being questioned. People, these religious leaders coming around this Jesus who is teaching these large crowds, these religious authorities coming around and saying like, Jesus, like, uh-uh, you don't have any authority to say or do what it is that you're doing. And Jesus then engages them in this push and pull sort of debate, right? So they're, they're debating him. And I, I mean, if you've ever had people at work question your authority or question your cognitive abilities or question your decisions, it gets kind of exhausting, right? And here's Jesus being questioned by these religious authorities. It then moves into a debate about taxes, because who doesn't want to talk about taxes, right? <laughs> they debate taxes with Jesus. Jesus, who should we pay taxes to? Should we even pay taxes? All of this push and pull and push and pull of Jesus being debated left and right. And then they say, all right, let's move away from the question of taxes. And now let's talk about marriage. And let's talk about the afterlife and what marriage is going to look like in the afterlife and if there really is going to be an afterlife and how all of this plays out. All of these eschatological, like philosophical, theological questions. He moves from the practical of like, we don't trust you, but hey, we want you to tell us what you think about taxes. 
We want you to tell us what you think about the end of the world. We want you to tell us what you think about marriage, what you think about the afterlife. All of this just left and right. He's being peppered with questions. And I got to tell you, I'd be pretty exhausted at that point. That feels like those are not short conversations. Those are conversations where words are getting parsed, right? Have you ever been in one of those conversations where you say something and people are like, mm, no, 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 but they're only honing in on one word and you're like, wait, 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 what's your definition of that word, right? Where, where you're really parsing definitions for words. These are the types of arguments that Jesus is engaged in at this moment, exhausted, and then this one guy comes up to him. This one religious leader comes up to him knowing that there has been this great debate because he's heard it. He's heard them debating. And he's noticed that Jesus had given them a good answer. And he asked of Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, if you've ever been engaged in a long, drawn-out debate, and someone comes up to you and asks you another question, you're not going to approach that very calmly, right? Like, your temperature is already really high. And then another person pops in and says, all right, let me test you. Let me test you. It's my turn. You've been doing this all day long, and now here I go. It's me. It's me. I got a good one for you. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, here's the thing. Like, when we think commandments, oftentimes we'll think the Ten Commandments, right? Like, we'll, we'll jump back, like, of all the Ten Commandments, Jesus, which is the most important? But here's the thing. This guy wasn't asking about the Ten Commandments. He was asking about the 613 commandments, the mitzvot. There were 613 commandments in, theology, in Jewish understanding, in Jewish law at this time. Now, granted, they didn't have, this didn't really come about until the third century that, that someone actually codified it and said, hey, there are 613. But we're talking about all of the commands that took place in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the books of law. And there are so many commands, not just the Ten Commandments, but like Leviticus has some Interesting, interesting commands, right? Because it's like, don't wear clothes made up of two different materials. It's one of the 613 commands. Don't eat shellfish. Another one of the 613 commands, right? It goes on and on and on and on. So when this man is approaching Jesus and he's saying, of all the commands, Jesus, which one is the most important? He's looking, he's looking to catch Jesus. He's, he's creating some sort of like doctrinal purity test, right? Like a doctrinal purity test of like, hey, Jesus, I've heard your answers in this debate and they've been pretty good, but let me really test you here. Let me really test what you think about the law. 
And when I test you about the law, I really want to know what is the core idea. I, one of the first job interviews that I ever had, I had a question kind of like this, where I sat down at the table and I was getting peppered left and right with all sorts of questions that just felt ridiculous. I mean, it was like, it was like, how late should students stay out on a school night? High school students? Yes, how late should they stay out? Whatever time their parents tell them. I, I, what, what, what are you asking here, right? I was, I was, a, I was interviewing for a youth ministry position to, to be a student pastor. Okay, what do you think about music? I like music. What kind of music do you listen to? A lot of different stuff. I, I don't know. Like, what are you looking for here? Like, like, give me some direction, right? But then there was this one question. It was a theological question. It was like, define faith. What? Define faith for us. So I, I was like, who, who's, who's got a Bible? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, who's got a Bible? And they're like, why do you need a Bible? I was like, well, I don't have the verse memorized. And they're like, what, what are you talking about? I was like, well, you want me to define faith. Hebrews 11, chapter 1 says faith is dot, dot, dot. That's all I remember. I, I, that's all I remember. I don't have it memorized, right? So g give me a Bible, and I'll open it up, and I'll tell you what I think faith is. It's that. I'm like, oh. Right? It was a doctrinal purity test of what I believed about what faith was. This is kind of where Jesus is at at the moment. This man is asking him of all the 613 commands, which one is the most important, Jesus? And Jesus looks at him. He says, all right, he says this, the most important one is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength. This is the most important thing, is what Jesus is saying. And this is a really good answer if you're looking for doctrinal purity. Right? Like this, this religious leader is asking for doctrinal purity. This is a really good answer because this is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This is a part of the Shema, which is the beginning of almost every single prayer in the morning and in the evening that the Jewish people will pray. It's like the most centralized part of their belief system, the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength. And of course, in Deuteronomy, it doesn't say exactly that. It's with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength. Jesus throws in the mind part in there, which is really kind of interesting. And there's a lot of debate about what that means. But basically, Jesus is saying, love God with everything, with every part of you, with your heart, with all of your emotions, with all of your soul, with the entire innerness of your being, with all your strength, with every single physical act that you do, with your body, love God, with everything that you have there, and with your mind. Think, process, go through it, be it. Love God with your entire being. And of course, the man is like, oh, yeah, this is good. Got it, Jesus. You just recited the Shema to me. All right, very nice, very nice. We're good, we're good, we're good. But Jesus doesn't stop there. 
He, he doesn't stop with that, which is really fascinating because, like, you can just see the man going like, yes, hmm. yes, you did it. You passed my test. And Jesus says, the second one. And you can see the man be like, I didn't ask for the second one. What is the second one? Right? I only asked for the first. What's the biggest? Jesus says, the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's really fascinating about this love your neighbor as yourself thing is it only occurs one time in the entirety of the Old Testament. One time. There are other laws within the Old Testament that are repeated in different places and in different spots, but the love your neighbor as yourself occurs only one time, and it's not just a solitary verse or even sentence. It's it's like inside of a command. It's Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Really fascinating that, that like Jesus has already passed the test. And here, he dives into the depths of the law to find a clause within a larger, a clause within a larger command, right? He, he finds this half a sentence, the, the but love your neighbor as yourself. He communicates the but, right? He finishes it as opposed to letting that be the whole. He doesn't even say the do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. This is the second greatest command, a clause. <laughs> a clause within a command is the second greatest command. In other spots within the Gospels, as Jesus is communicating these things, he says, these, are the, these two commands, the love God and love your neighbor, these two things are what the entire law hang upon. That the rest of the law actually hangs, grasps upon these things. Without these two things, the rest of the law is moot. The rest of these commands, the rest of the 613, the other 611 commands mean nothing without love God with all of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. It means nothing. And Jesus says kind of the same thing to the man here where he says, there is no greater command than these two things. Love God and love people. What's also really interesting is at this point in Mark, at this point in the story that is being communicated by Mark and of Jesus' life, he's actually worked to expand that idea of your neighbor. Because here, here in Leviticus, this is written specifically to the Hebrew people, specifically to them about how they were supposed to treat one another. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Your people. Not the external world, not the people that are out there, but your people. 
but love your neighbor, the person that's tent as you're wandering through the wilderness. Leviticus was delivered, like these commands were happening as they were wandering through the wilderness, as they were, as they were outside, as they were entering into the promised land and being received of the law. Like your neighbor in their hut, in their tent, in their place, in their home, that person that's right next to you or the, the person that's across the street or the person that you do business with in your own community, love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus has been redefining in the entirety of his ministry what it really means to love your neighbor and who your neighbor really is. If you'll remember the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, if you'll remember that Jesus shows her love, an outsider, a non-Hebrew person, that Jesus begins to show love to a Roman centurion, that Jesus shows love to the Gentiles, to those that are not a part of the community. The story of the good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus says, who is, where it's asked, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? The Samaritan people. The people that are not in your community. The people that are not like you. He begins to push and expand the boundaries of who it is that we are supposed to love. And he says, step into those places. That the greatest command is to love God with all that you have, but then to love your neighbor, not just for us, not just your Christian brothers and sisters, not just those people that are sitting here in this room at this time, those that are a part of this community that are, that are not here this morning, right? Like those sorts of, it's not just that. It's not the united people. It's not just the Christians in Queen Anne. It's not just the Christians in Seattle. But it's our true neighbors, the person that lives right next door to you, the person that you interact with at the coffee shop, the person that you see on the street, that you are supposed to love your neighbor as your Self, love your neighbor as yourself. The 13th century theologian Meister Eckhart talked about what this looks like. He said, if you love yourself, you love everybody as you do yourself. As long as you love another person less than yourself, you will not really succeed in loving yourself. But if you love all alike, including yourself, you will love them as one person, and that person is both God and man. Thus, he is a great and righteous person who, loving himself, loves all others equally. Now, Meister Eckhart, this 13th century theology, 13th century philosophy, as he's beginning to wrestle with what it means to love God and love people. And what Meister Eckhart is saying here is those two things are actually intertwined. That you can't actually love God without loving people. You can't actually truly fully love God with all that you are and with all that you have if you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. That the two actually play together. And in fact, you can't really love people well if you don't love yourself that you have to actually get to know you for all of the good and for all of the bad, and you have to love you. Because when you love yourself well, it's then that you'll be able to love people 
well. But here's where it gets really philosophical, all right? Break this down just a little bit more. Here's where it gets really philosophical. You can't truly love yourself unless you understand that God loves you. Unless you truly have opened yourself up to experiencing and understanding the love of God in your life, of actually having it poured into who you are, because then and only then will you truly understand your identity as a child of God, as a son, as a daughter of God. And in the midst of that, in that moment, then it flips over into you truly understanding yourself. And you then are able to pour that love into others. It's an overflow. It's an overflow. An overflow. What, what, what I love about Eckhart, what I love about Meister Eckhart is he, he kind of talks about his whole theology is based, his whole understanding of God and of the universe and how it all works is based on this idea that God created not out of need or not out of compulsion. God created out of an overflow of love. That God is the essence, is the source of all love, which is based in 1 John, right? 1 John chapter 4, where it says, God is love. God is love. God is nothing if he is not love. That that is the essence through which everything flows. And the created order, the created world that is around us came as an overflow of that love. And that overflow of love then gets poured into us. And we then have this overflow of love to which we pour into other people. And those people then have an overflow of love to which they pour into others. It's a continual progressive overflow of love everywhere around us. This is the ethic of love. It is an overflow of love reality. This is the essence of God. This is the essence of who we are. And this is the essence of what we pour into others. Eric Fromm is a philosopher. He wrote a book called The Art of Loving. And he talks about like the difference between mature and immature, between grown and infantile love. He says infantile love follows the principle, I love because I am loved. Mature love follows the principle, I am loved because I love. Immature love says, I love you because I need you. Whereas mature love says, I need you because I love you. There's this overflow of love. It's this reciprocal understanding of love that love is actually this very cyclical sort of thing that never runs out. It never ends. It never stops. Love is always there. Love is the ability to, it is the ability to love. Our ability to love depends on our capacity to emerge from narcissism and to focus our attention on others. Fromm talks about this in this book, The Art of Loving. He's a, a, a brilliant philosopher that, that just really wrestled with this idea of love and what it means and what it looks like and how we get to be that. It's an ability to emerge from this narcissistic understanding that, that love is here for me. 
And it's turning that outward and saying, no, love is here for others. Love is an overflow of the love that God has poured into me. Fromm also says that love is only possible through faith. Love is only possible through faith. That that is where it comes from. That that is where it happens. That is where the rubber meets the road. And so we have this Jesus... We have this Jesus who has sat with this man who has been debated all day long and he gives the first answer, love God with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, with everything that you are, with your entire being, just love God, love God. And he takes it a step further and says, but that means nothing if you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, that these two go hand in in hand, that without them, without the two, we are nothing. We are nothing. And the man looked at him and said, well said. <laughs> well said. Well done, teacher. Hmm. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Don't you just love it when you're having an argument with somebody and they're like, oh yeah, you're right, and then they just repeat back to you everything that you just said as if it's their own idea, right? Like you've just broken new ground with them and they're like, oh, absolutely, I've totally believed my entire life, blah, 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 blah. Oh. Thanks for repeating back to me everything that I just said. And that's exactly what's happening here. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. The argument, the debate, everything about it was over. Because Jesus had taken everything that was so big, that was so grandiose, that was so ethereal, that was so amorphous, and he laser-focused it in. He dialed it in and said, these are the things that matter. This is all that matters here in this moment. This is it. These two things. And so for us, as a community, as a people, as a church. This is why we are founded upon an ethic of love. It's because this is who Jesus has called us to be as humans. This is what Jesus has pushed us into the world to do, is to love people with all that we are. Because if we don't love people with all that we are, we cannot truly love God with all that we are. They are joined together at the hip. There is no separation between the two. They are together. And for us as a people, it's stepping out into the world, doing these things as a church, as a family, as a people. Loving our neighbor as ourself will look vastly different for each and every one of us. It'll just look different because we're different people. And we can join together as a community in various ways to do that. 
right? We can join together as a community in different ways to love others well, as an outflow, as an expression of who we are as individuals and as people. But it's going to look different. And I want us to engage our imaginations about what that looks like, about what it looks like for you as you step onto the bus tomorrow morning, as you're riding down the street on your bike tomorrow morning, as you're walking to work tomorrow morning, as you're driving to work tomorrow morning. What does it look like to love your neighbors, the people that you are passing by? When you enter into your office, when you enter into your workspace, when you enter into your co-working space, when you enter into that place, what does it look like for you with new eyes to love the people that are around you? What does it look like for you to step into that space? The other day when I was at, at the gym, the, the, the trainer came up to me announced to the whole class, hey, we've got a new person in our class today. His name is Andrew. Let's not all be Seattle-y. Let's say hello. For some of us, that is love. <laughs> For some of us, that is stepping into the world of love, is to break free from that Seattle freeze and just say hello. But what does that look like for you? Engage the imagination at work. Engage the imagination on your commute. Engage your imagination when you step into whatever space that you are in. What does it look like for you to love your neighbor as yourself? And what does it look like for us as a church to join together and do that together in the community around us? Engage your imagination because people are looking for it. People are looking for it. I think that's a reason why our tiny little church that's just a little over a year old is ranking number five or number six in the Google search for love church. People are looking for it. They're hungry for it. They're waiting for it. Let us be those people. Let us present a meal and a spread for them all, a feast of love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. And thank you for the way in which he synthesized the entire law, all 613 commands into two. Thank you that all the things hang upon those two things and that the call for us is to simply love you and to love others well. May you engage our imaginations. May you engage our hands and our feet and our activity, our minds and our hearts to love those around us well, knowing that it, that those actions and those things will express a deep, and profound love for you. May we present a feast for our neighbors, a feast of love. It's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 Third Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.